Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Steve Fowler, lead pastor, as he begins. So let me start my uh, talk by asking you a speculative question. A question that goes something like this. If, if you were God and you wanted to reveal yourself to a world that you've created, to a people that you have created, what would you do? If you're God and you want to reveal yourself to the people that you've created and you want to, to express or be able to describe the, the awesome disparity between who you are as God, the supreme creator, the sustainer of all things, and, and the people that you have created and the, the amazing difference between you and them, what would you do? How would you... How would you reveal yourself? I mean, because you'd have a lot of options, right? I mean, in our day and age, what you could do is you could, you could cut in at primetime TV and you could just take over all the channels and you could say, this is God and I'm here revealing myself to you. And people could try and change channels and it wouldn't matter which one they went to. They'd see you talking to them. Or you could take over the internet. Take over the internet. People are surfing the web and, and you, you jump in on their page. You've got your own little video prepared, your own YouTube, and you just take over that page. You start talking to them. They try and navigate away from the page and there you are again and, and you're, you're revealing yourself. You're talking to them. Or go big. I mean, think big here. Uh, how about you surround the entire planet in this, well, sort of a, like a 7 billion watt surround sound system. You know, the kind that can sort of shake and rattle the, the entire planet. And you crank up the volume, and you step up to the mic, and you say, you say, Hello world, this is God. And in the booming voice of God, the planet would shake, and, and like someone steps on an anthill, and ants scurry out. Uh, people would be running out of their homes, looking to the heavens, looking to the sky, and they would see God there, they would see you there, in all your majesty... And angels would be zipping around and flying around and people would be just standing to starstruck because then there's this pyrotechnic display of lightning bolts just zapping mountains and coming close to people, not hurting them, but coming, making, a, making a statement, making a statement. And, and jaws would drop, teeth would rattle, knees would knock because they would see who you are in all your majesty, in all your supremacy, and they would see just how small they are. What a way to reveal yourself to the planet you've created and the people that you have created as well. Yet when you look at the Christmas story, it, well, God is so much more quiet isn't he? I mean, there's no shaking of planet Earth. He's, so, he's more quiet, so, so much more subtle. In fact, let me just suggest to you, it just, it just seems wrong. It seems wrong knowing who God is and who we are that, that he would reveal himself to us in, in such a strange way. I mean, think about it for a moment. God sends his son and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is born, is born in a manger, a, a first-century stable, a place in the backyard, like a, like a barn. God's son is born in a barn. I have four kids, and when Trina and I were having our first child, uh, we took, a, we put a lot of thought 
into uh, where our child would be born. Uh, we had friends who had children, and so we asked them uh, what hospital they went to. We asked them who their doctor was. In fact, one couple that we, we interviewed, uh, they, they, they took, we had the same doctor as them, went to the same hospital because it came with such high recommendations. We wanted the, the place where the, that would offer the perfect care for our firstborn child. We wanted the best trained doctors. We wanted the nicest nurses. We wanted the cleanest rooms, the most comfortable birthing suites. We wanted to be germ-free, bacteria-free, and perfect for the birth of our first child, Beth. And when Bethany was born, they, they took her and they wrapped her in this heated blanket and they carried her. She had some health issues, so they rushed her out of the room. They wouldn't let us touch her. And she went into this nursery and it was just, it was just so clean and white and sparkly and, and germ-free. And yet when you look at the Christmas story, here, here's Joseph and Mary making a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of a census. And, and, and Joseph has his wife riding on a donkey. Now, I've never had a baby, but I have driven my wife to the hospital in a van. And I can't imagine riding on a donkey being that comfortable when you're having contractions. And, uh, and so Mary is, is having contractions as she's getting close to that, that exit ramp to Bethlehem. Uh, on the highway from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. And, uh, and she's having contractions and there's no hospital. There is no hospital. There are no doctors. There are, there are no nurses. There's no four-star hotel to check your family into. Nice, clean room with all the amenities. They're knocking on doors trying to find a place for this, this woman who's going to give birth to her first child. And no one's got room because of the census. And, and uh, finally, somewhere along the way, someone says, well, we got the stable out back. And Mary and Joseph take him up on the offer. And imagine, if you will, in your mind's eye, Joseph carefully taking his wife, who probably is taking a couple steps, stopping because here come the contractions again. And then he's guiding her carefully to this place she's going to give birth to Jesus and sort of maneuvering around these landmines of manure that are they're in the stable. It doesn't smell good. It's not germ-free. There, there, there is bacteria. And he, he carefully guides his wife Mary to a place where she could perhaps lay back in the straw and give birth to the Son of God who will be born in a barn. Joseph takes this child, this Christ child, and lays him in a feeding trough stained with the saliva of cattle. It just seems wrong, doesn't it? Shouldn't the Son of God be born in a, in a prestigious place? You know, Some place you could go back and visit. A, a, a nice building with, uh, uh, you know, that you could go back. It would just be, it'd be beautiful on the outside. And you could come up and, and there would be tour guides. You could show. You could buy your ticket. Get the little audio set. And go by all the stations. And just listen to the story over and over again. Because it's such a beautiful place where, where Christ was born. And there's nothing like that in the Christmas story. It, it, just, it just seems wrong. And on top of that, uh, the birth announcement for Jesus is just flat out weak. It's flat out weak. Now, I know you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I don't know the Bible real well, but there's angels singing, and I didn't have any angels at my birth. But, but look at it from the vantage point of heaven for a moment. 
the vantage point of heaven. Uh, you're an angel, and you know that the big day is coming. This has been in God's heart from the very beginning, to redeem mankind to himself, to reconcile people to himself. And so it's been planned, and there's going to be this announcement, and the angel, there's an angelic choir that's going to sing. Uh, they're going to sing, Glory to God in the highest. And they're going to declare the birth announcement of Christ. And so maybe there's, uh, there's auditions. Maybe there's auditions in heaven for, for people to sing, uh, angels to sing in this choir, and you've been picked. You're going to sing in the angelic choir, and you're practicing your part, and you're singing, and the day is coming. The day is coming and Gabriel, the night is here and Gabriel's running around. He's gathering the choir saying, this is it. This is the night and everyone take your places. So you're you're an angel. You you run up and you you get up there and and you're ready to sing. You're ready to sing glory to God in the highest and the curtain's about to be opened and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder where we're going to sing. Got to be Carnegie Hall, right? Kodak Theater, that'd be a great place to sing. Or maybe some, some cathedral-like place that the sound would just resonate and ricochet and people there would be so just amazed at, at, at the song and this announcement. The curtains open, you're there standing in your place, ready to sing that first song and, and, and you look out and you're in a field in Judea and you look around and you cannot see anyone. And you're wondering to yourself, who was in charge of publicity? You know, who was going to put the posters up? And as you look a little bit farther out, you see there's like five or six shepherds who are sleeping. And you start singing and they pop up and they're, they're just stunned and they fall back on their backs and, and their jaws are dropping and, and you're singing away to five or six shepherds in an empty field. And let's just say that Shepherds um, aren't really in the center of communication circles, unless you want to talk to animals. <laughs> these guys, these are not guys who are networked. They don't they don't have uh, connections to media, ways to get the word out. In fact, they lack credibility. In, in first century Palestine, in, in a court of law, you would not even accept a shepherd's testimony. They would not be a credible witness. The reason is, is because when they would take their, their flocks or sheep and they would take them to the hillside, if they came by your house and they saw something they liked, a lot of those shepherds would steal as they were on their way. They were seen as sort of the, the, the shoplifters or the thieves of the day. Not all of them were. But doesn't it seem wrong that this birth announcement is to a basically empty field to guys who are not well-connected? Is this the way to reveal yourself to a world that you've created? Is this how you do it? And and the name, the name Jesus, it's just too plain. I know for us, we know the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. We know the power of Christ's name. But in the scriptures, this name Yeshua, that in, in, uh, in English we would translate Joshua, this was a very common name. The word Joshua means Jehovah is my salvation. It was a common name. There were a lot of Joshua's running around the villages in first century Israel. Joshua was a common name. It'd be like the name Bob Smith or, or Linda Jones. Sorry, Bob and Linda, but, you know, it's just a... Uh, it's not a name that you would go, oh, man, I'll never forget that name. It's a, it's a very plain name. The name Yeshua or Joshua is it, just 
It's just normal. Why not like, like a Hollywood celebrity? Why not sort of kind of work your name so that it just flows easily off the tongue? Uh, why not have a name that's got a little zip to it, a little pizzazz? You know, something Charlton Heston-like. Or if you wanted uh, kind of an iconic name like Mr. T, uh, you know, Rabbi J. But he gets the name Joshua. Um, put yourself in the, in the story for a second. You're sleeping one night in Bethlehem, in this village, and there's pounding on your door. And the person is screaming at the top of their lungs, Bob Smith is born! Bob Smith is born! And you're going, oh, why? Why is that? Why are you waking me up with that news? I mean, don't we have enough little Bobs running around Bethlehem? And you ask your wife, who was that anyways? Oh, that was just our local shoplifter, just running through town, announcing Bob Smith is born. Bob Smith is born. Is this the way to win the world? Is this the way to win the world? I mean, you're God, and you're revealing yourself to your, the people you've created. Your son is not born in a palace, he's born in a barn. You've got this announcement to people who lack credibility, who aren't connected. It's got a plain name. And then what about the virgin birth? We, we embrace the virgin birth. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Talked about it from Joseph's viewpoint. Barb last week talked about this, this baby shower where guys come these shepherds and, and magi. The virgin birth, while we, under, we understand and, and accept this doctrine, would have had people shaking their head like, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you talking about? Can you imagine the, the conversation at the dining room table with Mary and her parents? It's sort of like a, a young, up-and-coming promising young woman in the church youth group that everyone sees as this, this young woman's just going to be the brightest star the world's ever seen. She's headed to a, a distinguished college and then she tells everyone that she's pregnant. Imagine the conversation back at home with Mary and her parents and sitting down at the dining room table and saying to mom and dad, mom and dad, I got to tell you the news. I'm pregnant. And you could already see dad starting to fidget and mom starting to cry. And then she goes on to say things like, you know, but I want you to know I haven't slept with anybody. At that point in time, you see smoke coming out of dad's ears. I mean, really, in in an honor-based culture, you would bring shame on the family. This is not just about you. In our culture, in our day and age, we don't think about how it impacts other people. Uh, a child born out of wedlock is, is fairly common. But in that day, it was uncommon and it brought a whole lot of disgrace and shame on the family. And don't think for a moment that Mary's family wouldn't have struggled with it. Don't think for a moment that Jesus, when he was grown up, didn't have his friends as he was out playing when he was four or five years old, making little comments to him about being an illegitimate son. Do you know in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, it says that an illegitimate child and his descendants to the 10th generation, 10 generations, an illegitimate child would be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. If you're an illegitimate son, which everyone probably perceived Jesus to be, you would be excluded from the assembly of the Lord and your descendants... For ten generations. There was stigma 
that came with this whole idea of the immaculate conception or the virgin birth. Is this the way that you as God are going to reveal yourself to a people you love so they'll see who you are? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of obstacles that are in front of people as they consider who you are. At times we read the scriptures and we come to you know places like First Chronicles chapters one through nine and we see all these genealogies and they're sort of like the the sleeping pill of scripture, <laughs> you know, like this guy begat that guy and this guy begat that guy and you're going, why in the world is that in this book? Well, because in in that day, in the oral tradition, your identity was connected to your family and ancestors and those who have gone before you, who you are is directly, uh, it relates to who's gone before you. And if God were going to platform his son, wouldn't he do it in such a way that, that uh, kind of like in a royal line, it'd be scandal-free? Kind of like in England, you know, one of the, the few remaining monarchies, uh, the royal line wants to be kept pure and scandal-free. You want to keep scandal out of that line. Yet, when God platforms his son, it's like his genealogy is full of scandal. Because if you look back far enough, you find a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab, who's a great, 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 you know, lots of greats, grandmother. Or you, you come to a detested Moabite woman named Ruth. Or you come to a guy who's a murderer and an adulterer named David, who has a son named Solomon, who takes a bunch of wives, a bunch of concubines, and then introduces to his nation the concept of idolatry. This is not a scandal-free, this is not a pure family tree that would platform you for success. Again, is this the way to win the world? It just, it just seems so wrong. It just seems wrong. And, and as Jesus grows up and he, and he gets older, you know, he begins his earthly ministry... Um, he he surrounds himself with his cabinet. You know, when we elect a president here in the U.S., how uh, that president will then choose leaders to surround uh, him, uh, and and uh, and there are people with credibility, people who are well educated, people who um, well they've got character and integrity. And uh, typically, there's these confirmation hearings where this, this cabinet member sits in front of these other senators and, uh, and they're being confirmed in their new role. And um, they're, they're looking to make sure you've you got the credentials to do the job. They're looking to make sure that you've got the qualities, you've got the, inter- the in- in- integrity and the character. And they're asking questions. They're looking to see if there's anything in your past that might bring dishonor to this, uh, to this presidency. Go back some years and look at some of the justices that have gone through this confirmation process. Go back, you know, 10, 20 years. Remember Clarence Thomas? Justice who, there was this perceived idea that he made some indiscretions. And uh, and that was, he, he was grilled about that. Or recently, uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, media kind of picking and politicians kind of picking to see, is there anything in her past that we could, could go after? Because if they could find something, it'd be like throwing raw meat to the lions, wouldn't it? The media would just chew it up. Chew it up. It'd be front page news. So who does Jesus choose for his cabinet? (laughs) He doesn't go to Harvard. Doesn't go to Stanford. 
Doesn't even go to the UVO or OSU. He goes to the wharves and the docks. And he chooses fishermen to be his inner circle. And if you followed close enough behind him, you sort of pick up their fishy scent. He chose what would be the equivalent of an, a bribe-taking IRS agent to be on his team. He chose a guy named Simon the Zealot, who in our day would have been a guy like who would have been in a, a part of a, a racist organization. Is this the way to win friends and influence the world? To surround yourself with people that would be a stumbling block for those who are listening to your message. And consider for a moment Jesus' press secretary, John the Baptist. This is not a smooth-talking guy who's going to be very politically correct about everything he says, doesn't want to offend anybody. No, no, no. Somewhere between a breakfast of honey and a dinner of wild grasshoppers, he straps on a camel hair suit with a leather belt. He walks out to a river and he preaches loudly and he gives a strong message of repentance. And when pastors and religious leaders show up, he calls them snakes and serpents. He calls people out on their sin. He, he tells them to repent. And after he's done with his sermon, he dunks people in water. And it's just frankly weird. But perhaps all these hurdles, all the, I mean, being born in a barn, the weak birth announcement, the, the whole shepherd fiasco, the plain name, uh, the, the family tree that's got a lot of crooked branches on it, the, the, the cabinet that Jesus surrounds himself with, even his own press secretary, maybe that will all be made up for when Jesus is being cornered and he's soon to die. Maybe he'll die in such a way. Maybe he won't die. Maybe when he goes to that cross and he's hanging on the cross, right before they put the nails in, there will be this angelic army. We have the, the choir that, 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 that was there. Now there's this warrior angels, this multi, millions of warrior angels that are released from heaven and they're brandishing swords and they're going to come down and they're going to save Jesus. It's going to be an incredible event. Everyone will see it. Everyone will be amazed and they'll know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That would be impressive. But that doesn't happen. You know, you, it's easier to identify with someone's death when they've done something heroic, like uh, thrown their body on a grenade and saved their friends. Or like a secret service agent, they're stepping in front of the assassin's bullet to protect the president. But Christ doesn't die a heroic death. He dies a death of shame and dishonor Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And I don't think that, that we see the cross through the same eyes as the people back in that day would have. I don't see the cross, we don't see typically the cross as, as foolishness or odd. Uh, but that's because the cross is a symbol of, of a sacrificial death. We understand that Christ went to the cross to pay for our sin penalty, for all of humanity's sin penalty. 
that we who fall short of God's standard, God's glory, are subject to the consequences of sin, which is death. Christ never sinned. He died so that you don't have to. He goes to that cross. We see it as a beautiful thing. In fact, some of you have a cross on your necklace. Others of you may have a, a, a cross on a ring. Or maybe it's in, on your earrings or uh, maybe there's one in your home, one in your office. We have a cross on our church. We have a cross on our platform. The cross was an instrument of death. And today, people don't die on crosses. But when someone is sentenced to death, they, they die in an electric chair. Or they get a, a lethal dose of a fatal drug. Some countries, they, they still hang people. There's a firing squad. It's a criminal's death. Think for a moment about some of the songs that we sing. And just change a few words to help you understand uh, the, the struggle here. Uh, there's an old hymn that says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. What if we all stood up and we sang the hymn at the electric chair, at the electric chair where we first saw the light? Or how about that old hymn that says, there's room at the cross for you. And we just sort of change the words and we would sing, there's room in the gas chamber for you. Can you feel the tension? This is a, this is a problem. Which is why Paul writes, the message of the cross is foolishness. Can you imagine Jesus saying to someone, take up your noose and follow me? Because that's what he says. Take up your cross and follow me. This is a head scratcher. Look at some of the scriptures that we, we read. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul writes, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Or we could say, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ shot. That's strange. Chapter 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him electrocuted. This is a pretty tough pill to swallow. I mean, is this the way to win the world? Is this the way to, to tell the world that you're God and you're revealing yourself to all humanity so you send your son, he's born in the barn and you go through the litany of things and, and you get to the climax and, and here he is on the cross and it's he dies a criminal's death. This is just wrong. What is going on here? Just over 25 years ago, I took my girlfriend at the time to the hills of Sausalito uh, to a bench. You look back at the city of San Francisco through the Golden Gate Bridge. It was a beautiful night. The city is glowing in the evening. And my girlfriend, girlfriend at the time, Trina Holstey, was sitting on the bench and uh, I got down on one knee with a ring in one hand and I asked her to marry me. And fortunately for me, she said yes. What if, what if I got down on one knee and I had a ring in one hand and I had a club in the other? <laughs> or, or, or a gun. And I said, 
marry me or else. Well, if she did say yes, I'd have to take every meal that she cooked, feed it to the dog first to see if it lived, and then take a bite. Right? Because no one wants to... No one wants to be loved by someone whose hand was forced. Who wants to be loved by someone who was manipulated into loving you? Who wants to be loved by someone who drank some secret potion that made them love you? You want to be loved by someone. You want to be cared by, for by someone. You, you want someone who will love you all the years of your life because they fell in love with you and they chose you. And that's what God wants. Oh, he, he's working behind the scenes. But note this. He is not going to force your hand. He's not going to set up the surround system and shake the earth because he doesn't want to manipulate you into choosing him. He wants you to understand who he is. And so it is like that he works so hard to not impress you and I. He works so hard to, to not impress you that in some cases there are obstacles in going to him because when you choose him, he does not want you to choose him because your hand was forced or he manipulated your decision to walk with him. He's working behind the scenes because he is the God who romances. Let's not forget, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Oh, he's romancing. He's alluring And some of you in this room, many of you in this room, know that he is the God who romance, romances you because you remember the day that you believed in the Christ child. And he's still romancing you. He's still speaking tenderly to you. He still loves you beyond any, anything you'll ever comprehend. Scriptures teach us that his love for you surpasses knowledge. You don't have the mental capacity to even fully understand how deeply he's in love with you. There are others, others of you in this room who God is romancing. You're here today and you're wondering, how in the world did I get in this place? Grandma drug you. And you're here just to sort of cover your bases. And I want to tell you, God is romancing you as well. He's not going to force your hand. But he will romance you. Because he loves you. Years ago in Russia, in the 1930s, when Stalin was, was leading that country, he began to persecute Christians in Stavropol, this one city, he began sending believers off to gulags, these internment camps, prison camps. He would confiscate Bibles, and they took all these Bibles and they put them in a warehouse in Stavropol. And thousands of, of people died in these gulags, thousands of believers. Fast forward 60 years or, or 50 years when the, the Iron Curtain comes down. And Russia opens, and missionaries go into Russia, and they begin telling the, the news about Emmanuel, God with us. 
They're in Stavropol, and they're, they're having trouble getting Bibles from Moscow shipped to them. And so they hear about the story of these Bibles that were confiscated that are still in a warehouse, people think, from the Stalin days. So they go and they ask the government for permission to get these Bibles, and the government says yes. And so they rent trucks, these missionaries rent trucks, and they go out and they, they recruit hired labor for a day, a day's pay. And people come because they want to work and earn some money, and they're going to go out and gather up these Bibles and load the trucks. There's one gentleman who is hired for the day. He's a skeptic. He's an agnostic. He's not interested in anything about God, but he's, he's in it for a day's pay. And so he joins, and he's in the warehouse as they're loading these Bibles onto the truck, the trucks are all loaded, the warehouse is empty, and they're counting heads to see if everyone is, is on board, and they realize they're missing one person, and they're missing this skeptic, this agnostic college student. And they go back in the warehouse looking for him, and there he is in the corner of the warehouse, and he's sobbing, his body is shaking as he is weeping, and he's holding a Bible. As everyone else was loading the trucks, he, he decided he was going to steal a Bible for himself, and uh, as he opened it, he wanted to read some of the first words, but when he got to the first page, what he discovered just rocked him. He saw the name of his grandmother on the first page. It was his grandmother's Bible that had been confiscated before she was sent off to a gulag where she died. And this young man, this agnostic, this skeptic, walked in and pulled a Bible off a shelf of a room filled with thousands of them and just so happened to grab his grandmother's Bible. He is the God who romances. He's romancing you. Whether you've been a follower for 50 years, He's still romancing you. He's still bringing gifts. He's still saying kind things. And for those of you who are being drawn by Him, He's romancing you as well. And he's making himself as vulnerable as a one-hour-old baby laid in a feeding trough stained with the saliva of cattle. He's not going to force your hand. He's not going to try and overly impress you. But he's romancing you because he wants you to know him. You've been listening to Steve Fowler, lead pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.